Brick Moon Fiction presents Skin Deep by Jason D. April, narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle. Harris watched the chopper land with a deep sense of dissatisfaction embedded in the lines on his face. He understood the need for a specialist, given the thing they'd found, a thing he refused to put any other word to, although the rest of the crew didn't seem to have any problems. New people were always trouble, especially in a crisis. Harris had spent almost twenty years refining and honing his team into a perfectly oiled machine. He was immensely, if quietly, proud to know they were the ones called in to do the impossible rescues, to find the unfindable in the middle of hell on Earth. Except this time, much as he hated even thinking about it, Earth might be left out of the equation. A nagging voice in the back of his head told him it was definitely going to still be hell. "'What's the matter, Sarge?' came Sora's voice from behind. Don't want more of those damn doctors and scientists around? Harris snorted and glanced sideways as she stopped behind him to stare at the now-landed helicopter. Sora was a unique mix of everything. Her father, a black serviceman stationed in Japan. Her mother, Japanese and Korean in equal measure. She was a slight five-foot-three, spoke at least eight different languages, proficient in who knew how many combat styles, and loved her job as an emergency room surgeon. She'd joined the team eight years ago and proven to be a miracle worker when it came to tight rescues in collapsed structures and rubble. You know I hate when you call me that, Harris said. I was never in the military. I only became a firefighter for the girls. Sora chuckled as they watched a tall, slender person step off the helicopter. Jesus, they look like Iman, she remarked. Which one, the model or the basketball player? I'm good with either one, she said, squinting. At this distance, it was hard to say anything definitive beyond absurdly tall, thin, and dark. Come on, he said, walking toward the landing pad. Let's go make introductions. By the time they reached the hastily set-up command center in front of the tent town where they all had been staying for the better part of two months, Carter and Abhishek had joined the procession. Up close, the new arrival had an almost ethereal quality. Harris guessed they were six foot seven easy, dressed in a simple but finely made black and red ankle-length robe, a red skull cap, and, just visible beneath the robe, a pair of very expensive Nike Air hiking shoes that somehow matched the coloration of the rest of his garb. Good morning. I am Dr. Karim Zarouk, but you can call me Kaz. Kaz smiled widely and extended his hands to Harris, clasping and shaking his with both hands, before turning and repeating the gesture in turn to the other three. Behind them, the helicopter pilot signaled to them. Harris nodded and waved back, then turned to the command center as the copter geared up and lifted away. Hope you brought your luggage, Doc, Harris yelled over the engines. We won't be seeing our ride home for a while. A moment later, the noise faded away as the team entered the large tent. It was mostly full of long tables, chairs, and a few terminals and radios. Harris walked to the coffee machine and poured a couple cups. He looked at Kaz and held up a cup questioningly. The doctor stepped up and took the cup. Thank you, he said. Harris couldn't place his accent. He knew the man was originally from Sudan, but had been educated all over the world, and those influences made his speech sound oddly casual and low-key. You have friends in high places, Doc, Harris remarked, moving toward the table where the rest of his crew had already sat down. I'm not exactly sure what a xenobiologist is or why it was an emergency to get you here so fast, but this is first and foremost a rescue operation. Whatever the hell brought you here is very secondary to me. Carter laughed and slapped his hand on the table. Come on, he said with a wide grin on his face. You saw the same thing we saw, Mitch. 
I'm not saying it's, you know, aliens. He laughed again as Harris rolled his eyes, knowing the punchline to this damn joke too well. But, you know, Carter continued, it's aliens. Abhi laughed. Sora shook her head, and Harris waved him off, turning back to the doctor. So, anyway, Harris said, trying to move on. Our comedian over there is John Carter, Alabama born and bred, then Marines. Then somehow he got a geological and chemical engineering degree. Carter waved, still smirking. The quieter half of frickin' frack there is Abhishek Dar. He's our explosives and demolition expert, a whiz on cranes and finding structural flaws, Harris went on. After he got out of the army, his love of blowing shit up took him into mining back home in India, then mine safety and rescue. He is, bar none, the person you want coming for you if you get trapped in a cave-in. He also invents a lot of weird shit that also usually blows up. Thanks, boss, Avi replied with a laugh and a wave. And this is Sora Kobayashi, doctor and badass, who will, I hope, be leading this team long after I'm gone. We've also got some good local help helping us at ground level here. So hopefully, things won't get worse than they already are. Oh, interjected Sora, and this is Mitchell Harris, dreamy Californian firefighter turned rescuer to the world. Kaz nodded at them each in turn. Well, I'm very appreciative to be a part of your team, he said. I know babysitting a science nerd isn't your idea of fun, but I assure you I can hold my own in extreme circumstances. I've done extensive deep-sea and cave-diving for my research. I know how to deal with stress. Harris nodded. Carter and Abhi stood up. You discovered some pretty alien shit in the trench, right? Carter asked. The doctor laughed. Well, alien is a relative term. Technically, we're all aliens to someone. But some aliens are less friendly than others. Well... Abhi said. That makes me feel so much better. The tent protecting their prepped gear from the sporadic rainstorms that were still causing havoc weeks after the initial quakes stood about twenty feet from the steeply sloped precipice leading down into the darkness of the fissure. A series of five specially constructed cranes with several hundred feet of thick rope spooled up were firmly installed into the rocky surface. The team stood at the edge, looking down. Harris was clearly weary of it but noticed the doctor looked perfectly at ease staring down into the abyss. The quakes opened right up below a small settlement, Harris told Kaz. A whole community just swallowed up by the rock. There were several fissures opened, and we found most of the houses down those, in pieces, obviously. Miraculously, there were survivors. Anyway, most of the fissures never closed up after the shakes, but this is the deepest. It's a whole series of caves the deeper you go, very strange stuff. When we found... the thing... It was about a half a mile north, after you get to the floor, which is about 75 meters down. And that's where you lost your man? Kaz asked, looking at Harris. Harris nodded. Yes, we were mapping out the area, taking samples and photos, setting up spotlighting rigs, and he was investigating the item. A tremor came out of nowhere and caused a cave-in, trapping Travis in there with it. With something, Carter added. That scream sure as hell wasn't Travis. I never heard anything like that anywhere. Harris grimaced and shrugged at Kaz. He's not wrong, was all he said. Harris was a cautious man. He took safety to the next level with his team, and by now, despite whatever macho bravado the team showed, they had long since fallen in line with what they called the Harris Protocols. As a result, they were all still alive through quakes, tsunamis, buildings falling around them, and massive drops into a deadly abyss. He'd screwed up with Travis, though, letting the man's unbridled science nerd glee get the better of both of them. 
Travis kept wanting to run one more test, one more scan, one more thump of the ultrasound scanner that normally was used to help locate bodies trapped under three stories of collapsed building. Just one more, but it was one too many. The quake happened immediately after the familiar heavy thump of the scanner, just shy of being an outright shotgun shell level impact. That was 12 damn hours ago, and heavy winds and rain had prevented them from staying down there or going back before this. Harris was already apprehensive and suspicious about Kaz going down with them, but that level of suspicion increased at the sight of just how fearless and skilled the good doctor was taking the line down into the dark. Carter and Appy stared slack-jawed as they watched the stranger deftly descend as if he were floating. Sora just looked amused and laughed harder when she saw Harris's tight-jawed head shake. Two-thirds of the way down, Harris told them to turn their lights on. He kept a careful eye on his wrist display as they hit the dark. Ten seconds, he called through the headset. Watch it. Carter, hit the generator as soon as we touch ground. Abby, watch his back. Sora, stick with our guest. Kaz dropped first. The rest of the team hit the ground in perfect sync, globes of light from the shoulder lamps barely cutting through the pitch-black cavern ahead of them. Carter moved from memory to where the generator was. Ground, Harris said aloud. We've hit bottom. Confirm. Over. There was a harsh squelch in his ear. Copy that, came the thickly accented English from Tran, who had command center shift today. Over, he hastily added. Boss, Carter came through his earpiece. We got problems. Generator is trashed. Command, Harris said, immediately moving to Carter's position. ETA on dropping a new one. Over. Fifteen, Tran said, with almost no hesitation. The boys are rigging up two now. Nice and easy. Over. You know, as Harris approached them, these are real-time synchronous comms, not old-ass walkie-talkies, right? Harris ignored him, shining his light on the same spot Carter and Abhi were. The generator was, quite literally, shredded. What the hell? he murmured. He reached down with a gloved hand and ran a finger along the torn metal shielding before looking up at the two men. Guess we're intruding, Carter said, pulling another flashlight and slowly scanning the path ahead and the rock around them. We might need something more than flare guns here, boss. In the background, they could barely hear Tran yelling at someone in Nepalese. None of the team spoke even the basic language with any fluidity here, let alone the countless dialects. The team stared at each other, and Carter shrugged. Travis groaned in the dark. He felt cold stone against his back and head. His left hand moved slowly along the floor of the cave as he struggled to breathe. He couldn't feel his right arm at all. He tried to lift his head, but an agonizing pain across his neck stopped him. Suddenly noticing the disturbing numbness where his legs should be, Travis tried to call out, to scream, but only managed a pained gasp. Somewhere behind him came clicking sounds, something rhythmically moving across the floor. It stopped just before his head and he saw something peering down at him, eyes glowing. It wasn't a man, but sure as hell wasn't any kind of animal Travis had ever seen. The long face, with huge eyes and a mouth that almost looked like a canine's muzzle, connected to a thin neck on a long, thin body that was midway between that of a dog and a human. Its skin had a metallic sheen highlighted with pulsing blue lines, like veins on the surface. The creature's glow provided enough light for Travis to see the long stone box they'd found. The symbols covering the great stone box began to light up. He was sure it was an ancient burial cask so old there was no record of its language. In those last few seconds, as the walls and ceiling came down upon him, Travis heard that horrifying sound. 
saw the creatures appear around the nearly blindingly illuminated box, and realized maybe this place wasn't just a tomb, but a prison. The creature stared down at Travis's shaking head. The man's erratic breath became more rapid, his arm and hand twitched but wouldn't lift. Suddenly, it started making bizarre choking sounds as it looked up to the ceiling, and then a hacking noise before dropping its head back down again. A flood of thick bluish-gray fluid erupted from its mouth over Travis's face and chest. He tried to cry out, to scream for help, but nothing but a garbled gasp came out. The liquid spread out, encapsulating his entire head and part of his chest. It felt fire against his skin as Travis struggled to say something, anything. Suddenly, sharp barbs pierced the skin over his face and body and dug down to the bone. The pain was excruciating, and then everything went black. Abhi and Kaz stood side by side, staring at the mouth of the tunnel. Behind them, near where they'd dropped in, the new generators started making cantankerous popping sounds before steadying out into a low hum. The floodlights finally kicked on, briefly blinding everyone. This was filled in, Kaz said, staring at a pile of rocks that had clearly been pushed out to reopen the tunnel. Yep, Abhi nodded. Tons of rock collapsed the tunnel here and several more over there cutting us off from Travis and most of the gear we'd brought down. What the hell? Kaz stepped into the opening, shining his light around, occasionally reaching out and touching the cold stones. The tunnel was high enough to accommodate his height as he stepped further in, where the floodlights didn't reach. Abhi shifted uncomfortably, raising his hand in alarm. Hey, if something did this, we don't want to get separated, he said, a bit too loudly. Kaz looked back at him and laughed. Oh... This wasn't natural, he replied, waving him over. Look at this. Avi hesitated, but cautiously moved closer. The doctor's light focused on the floor just at the border of the collapse. There were clear sets of markings cut into the rock, a line of five sharp cuts, about an inch or so wide and at least twice as deep. The marks were in pairs. Avi looked around him, shining his light across the floor. There were at least three pairs of the strange marks, and, as he looked higher, more on the walls and even the ceiling. He noticed now that something had hewed through some of the large rocks. But what? Abhi started, but stopped short as Kaz's hand raised up suddenly. He put one finger to his lips, his eyes wide, as he nodded toward the dark of the tunnel. Abhi froze and could hear it, hear something. Hard clicking sounds moving across the rock. There was a long breathing sound, an elongated exhale followed by a quiet, wheezing inhale. Abhi gasped, nodding his head to himself, almost whispering something. His left hand slowly reached behind to his pack and unzipped a side pocket. He pulled out a small black disc with a red button in the center and in one smooth motion, pressed it, and threw the hockey-puck-sized object into the dark ahead. Kaz looked at him questioningly, but Abhi was counting softly to himself. Four, three, two. Cover your eyes, he yelled at Kaz as he turned away from an explosive flash of light. The effect was immediate. Multiple piercing screeches came from the light, which had plastered a still-burning phosphorus cocktail in a twenty-foot radius around the explosion. Abhi's breath cut short when he realized they weren't alone. There were two of them, coated in the glowing mix. One crawled across the ceiling, the other slightly lower on the left-hand wall. They were roughly man-sized, canine-like beasts with a distinct metallic skin. They held onto the rock effortlessly with clawed, almost hand-like appendages. Their mouths erupted open like some nightmare flower blooming, revealing a mass of needle-like teeth in a circular pattern. 
They hissed angrily at the two men, but didn't approach. What the fuck? Carter's voice came from behind Abhi. The Indian jumped and saw the rest of the team. Carter and Harris had firearms, a military-grade assault rifle for Carter, and Harris held what looked to Abhi like Dirty Harry's magnum revolver with both hands. Just behind, Abhi could see Sora was holding what was either a large shotgun or a grenade launcher. Hold, Harris said quietly. Carter nodded as the two species stayed frozen in a stare-down. If one of those ate Travis, Carter said, leaning his head toward Harris, I'm fragging them. Duly noted, Marine, Harris said. Kaz, you're the xenobiologist, right? Tell me there's a logical explanation for what the hell I'm staring at. Kaz shrugged, his hand covering his mouth as he stared at the creatures thoughtfully. There's always a logical explanation, but it might not be the one you want. We need to drive them away to get to the artifact. It may hold the answers we need. I don't want to kill anything unless we have no choice, Harris said. We have no idea what these things are, but they make our rescue op a lot more complicated. Suddenly the creatures turned and ran back into the dark, a trail of bright white lighting the ceiling as they went. Transcend us a care package, Harris said, reaching behind him and pulling out a semi-automatic pistol. He held it out to Kaz. You know how to use one of these. Kaz took the gun and nodded. I've seen my share of conflict, so unfortunately I do. Okay, team, Harris said. We've been in situations before. Treat this like we would any other potential war zone where someone doesn't want us around. Slow and steady. We get Travis, we get out. Behind Harris, Carter had his hand on Abby's shoulder, whispering into his ear and handing him a shotgun. They moved forward. There were trails of glowing phosphor heading down the tunnel, but they noticed occasional crags in the cave that suggested side passages too small for a person. Smears of the glowing white coated the edges of an opening of one high on the right wall. Harris and Carter glanced at each other and nodded. The path began sloping noticeably down. About two hundred meters ahead, Harris said softly to Kaz. The doctor nodded. Everyone else was on edge, guns at the ready, but Kaz seemed almost relaxed. It made Harris even antsier. Another seven minutes and they got to a large pile of rock. Much like the initial collapse, something had forced its way through. He shined the light into the opening. It was an oddly pear-shaped cavern, with the artifact in the center about fifteen meters ahead. It was a four-foot-high, four-by-eight-foot rectangle covered in some kind of markings, Travis had called petroglyphs. There was rubble everywhere around the strange box, but no signs of movement. One by one, they passed through the opening and scanned the room for anything living. Without a word, Kaz immediately moved to the artifact. Harris considered warning him to watch for monsters, but a low call from Sora immediately distracted him. She was about ten feet to the left of the box, staring at the floor in horror. Carter and Abhi got there first and simultaneously retched. The smell hit Harris before he could see anything. It was a putrid mix of rotted meat and something almost chemical, like harsh cleaning fluids. Amidst scattered rocks was a strangely shaped puddle of thick, viscous goo, mostly a pale pink color. It was vaguely human-shaped. Had a human being been melted on that spot while lying on their back? The puddle was also wearing clothes. A protective reflective vest, familiar cargo pants, thick leatherwork boots. No one spoke, but all recognized that outfit. There was a vague imprint of a face, but all the bones seemed dissolved away, as were the eyes. All over the head, torso, and arms were small black spots. 
Harris knelt beside the remains, looked closely, trying like hell not to throw up. The black spots looked like thorns. Carefully reaching into a side pocket, he pulled a small nylon zipper bag out. He retrieved a pair of tweezers and carefully pulled one of the thorns up. It resisted at first, and then came free with a popping sound. A small clear bulb, about a half an inch wide, sat underneath the black thorn top. Inside the bulb, something wiggled. He heard the doctor behind him say something under his breath in a language he'd never heard. Harris stood, still carefully holding the thorn. He glanced at his team trying not to show emotion, and then turned to Kaz. You know what this is? The doctor hesitated for a moment, and then nodded. It's a spawn pod, he said, similar to octopus or other cephalopods in Earth's oceans. Harris shook his head. So an octopus did this he replied incredulously. Kaz shook his head. No, Mitchell, that is definitely not anything indigenous to Earth. Carter shook his head, cursing under his breath as the other two team members tried to look anywhere but the floor. I want to know what the hell is going on. Harris was barely keeping his anger in. Why is Travis dead? What's that goddamn stone box doing here? And what are those animals in here with us? As if on cue, dark spots in the high roof of the cavern started to glow and sounds from other unseen openings started to echo through the chamber. Immediately, flashlights raised to see rectangular openings along the top of the wall. Eyes reflecting light shone for a second before ducking back into their tunnels as the two glowing creatures began to crawl down the wall. Kaz held a hand up to Harris and his team as they raised their guns. Don't provoke them, he whispered sharply. They guard the sarcophagus. Carter looked rapidly between the sights of his rifle and Kaz. What's in the box, Doc? His breathing was tense. What's in the goddamn box? The creatures began moving down the wall, slowly. It seemed like wherever they shined a light, something with teeth was there. The creatures started making a clicking noise, barely more than a low vibration. Boss, Sori hissed. What are we doing? You have seconds to explain yourself, Doctor, Harris said, teeth clenching. My people are not going out like Travis. They guard the seeds, Mitchell, and spread them if necessary. They aren't here to hurt you, only to protect life. Harris laughed, lowered his gun as he stepped aggressively towards the doctor. He pointed at the puddle of Travis. Does that look like they were protecting life to you? Travis was a scientist, not a soldier. He was no threat to anything. Around them, the chittering sounds of the creatures grew louder and closer, Tell me what the fuck is going on, he was yelling now, or we will light this whole goddamn place up. He raised the gun to Kaz's head, and I will personally start with you. The creatures hissed in unison, but Kaz looked toward one of them and shook his head. Immediately, they backed down. Carter cursed again, shaking his head. I think our doctor has been omitting some important details in his curriculum vita, Sora said never taking her eyes off the targets she was tracking with her shotgun's barrel. The doctor looked down at Harris and grimaced. The gun in his face seemed completely irrelevant as he turned to the artifact. It's not stone, you know. That outer layer grew on it, essentially, sometime in the last sixty million years. He put his hand, long, thin fingers splayed widely, on top of the box and pressed. The creature's cacophony moved up an octave to a strange, sharp high note. The ground shook lightly, and cracks began to appear on the box. Thin slabs of rock started falling off, revealing what looked like a black, super-smooth metal. 
The symbols were glowing, and Harris could see a slight seam marking the lid from the rest of the object. This was, is the equivalent of an ancient black box, Kaz said. His slender fingers gently pushed on the side of the lid, and it slid rapidly off, landing on the ground with an echoing thud. His expression changed to melancholy, staring down. The lost final remains of a species dead before the dinosaurs finished walking your earth. Harris stepped forward and peered in. The rest of the team followed hesitantly, but curiosity won out over paranoia. Carter managed to laugh, and Harris, Sora, and Abhi all looked at him at once. He shrugged. I don't want to say it's aliens, man, Carter said, staring at the entombed form. Harris grimaced and shook his head. It was long, thin, and definitely not human. A vaguely humanoid shape punctuated by tentacles where human legs would have been, arranged so straight and neatly they almost looked like it was wearing a skirt. It had arms that extended into tentacles that varied between around six inches to almost two feet long. The creature was a silvery gray, with highlights of red, blue, and other colors visible across its entire body. Is this a coffin millions of years old? Carter asked, looking up at Kaz. Why does this thing look like it's going to jump straight up and eat my face? It's not a coffin, he replied, not looking up. He reached his right hand in as if he wanted to touch the body, but didn't. It's a preservation chamber. And a prison. A sacrifice made by one extraordinary being to try to save something from an entire race that wiped itself from the universe due to its own carelessness and arrogance. Harris looked between the alien body and Kaz. And you knew this one, he said. Kaz nodded. Yes, he said, placing his hand finally on its abdomen. Long ago. He looked at Harris, then the others in turn. I have been searching for an unthinkable amount of time. We knew the seeding pod sent to this planet so long ago was successful, that life was thriving here, so before the end, some of us spread out with these life pods to planets we knew could sustain life, so that someday there would be some record of the good we had done and the bad. We wanted to be a warning and a symbol of hope for others. Those of us who made that decision were chosen because of our genetic adaptability. Our endlessly reconfigurable forms assured we would walk time as long as we could endure it. I thought I was the last. But when I saw the pictures of your find, I had hope for the first time in, well, a long time. Harris looked up, seeing the glimpse of glowing movement behind Carter. The two creatures shimmered and rapidly blinked into and out of his vision. Sora let out a gasp as she looked around, mouth open in surprise. The chamber brightened somehow as the circle of the strange aliens all started blinking and shifting erratically, then began to disappear. After a moment, there was only one left, still glowing in white patches from Abhi's light grenade. It slowly walked over to Kaz and sat as if it were just a normal dog. It was smaller now, less humanoid and menacing, and much more canine. Sora was staring hard at the being in the tomb and then looked up directly at Kaz. She was angry now. And what about Bill? She nearly yelled, pointing at the direction of the human stain on the floor. Travis, our friend, our teammate, dead. Because why? He found your little alien love nest? She was in front of him now, tears welling up. What about him? Was it the thing in the box or that goddamn dog or whatever the hell is it that did that to him?
Kaz looked down at her, his tall frame completely still. Then he sighed and nodded. You know, on your planet, cephalopods are fascinating, he said, turning from Sora and walking to what used to be a man on the floor. They are one of the oldest forms of higher life here, and some of them have abundant intelligence. He turned back to Sora with a smile. Some of your more well-known authors are even obsessed with them, while most might just think they're delicious. He knelt down beside the putrid mass and gently picked up the thorn pod Harris had dropped. Putting it close to his face, he stared at it, at the gently moving tiny thing just visible inside the pod. My point, he went on, is that the octopus, in particular, started out much like my own people did, but for reasons hit a wall to prevent it from evolving enough to become the dominant intelligent species. He turned his hand holding the thorn down toward the fleshy mass and plunged the thorn into the center of the mass. They have such short lifespans, you see. They don't have time to do much more than survive, like nearly every other form of life in the known universe. He turned and smiled at them again. And my kind, well, we knew much. He waved both hands over the mass and thorns, letting out a strange, high-pitched call. Immediately, the bulbs of the thorns began to glow a vibrant blue. He stood up and turned. Lifespan isn't all that matters for sentience, of course. Many dinosaurs could live far longer than anyone realizes. There are trees on this planet seeded a thousand years ago. Turtles! He laughed and shrugged. I love turtles. We didn't have those on my world. He stepped to the sarcophagus again and reached in with both hands, marking symbols in the air above the inert body. Glowing glyphs appeared, as if he were writing in the air. Your friend, he said, not looking up, wasn't murdered by my kin or their technology. William Alexander Travis was dying from having his body crushed by the cave-in. He was dying a slow, painful death. Kaz turned toward them absently petting what was now a very large dog that appeared to be a full-on English wolfhound. So this dog took the actions for which it was created and preserved the necessary elements that made your mate who he was. The gooey mess was lifting, bubbling, engulfed by a blue radiance. Humans are convenient in that regard, Kaz said, moving his hands around the floating mass. Organic brains are magical things and not too different anywhere in the universe believe it or not. We're all just chemical factories and squishy storage cells. Once brain death occurs, those chemicals break down and cells rot away. What you are, essentially, just stops being. They watched, awestruck, as the disgusting rotten mix started folding in around itself, rejuvenating itself in the light bath and lengthening out, forming into a rough yet familiar human form. Just cloning a thing is easy, Kaz went on. But that's not preserving anything, merely making a copy. We discovered our spawn pods, with some tweaking, were perfect sponges for genetic, chemical, and cellular matter. We could use them as storage for what makes us not just a general generic person, but an individual. The shape of the body was refining itself now, moving from a generic human form to something that was beginning to look familiar to Harris and his team. The hound saved Travis by transferring his brain his vital DNA template, in the seed pods of my people, so that those pods could rehome the data into an unbroken vessel. The body rotated to an upright position. It was Travis again, complete with the clothes he had been wearing just a day ago. One by one, the blue lights twinkled out, 
and the thorns fell to the ground. It wasn't a viable solution to preserve my people, unfortunately. Too many complications, but on a single-brained species like yours, it can be used cautiously. The light field had completely disappeared, and Travis fell to his knees, gasping. No! Get away! he shouted, waving his hands away defensively. Sora got to him first and hugged him tightly. God damn it, Travis, she said sternly. I told you to move faster. Kaz became just a part of the background as the team welcomed back their confused team member and then turned his attention back to the figure in the box. He stroked at its vaguely human-like face with one hand as the other rapidly conjured symbols in the air above it. They were more than just a person you used to know, Harris said, stepping beside Kaz. The doctor nodded. It was slightly more complicated with my people, but for simplicity's sake you could say she was my wife. Is she still alive in there? Can you revive her? Kaz shook his head, one hand still touching her face. I don't know. The pods, they were supposed to have become active well before this and revived her, but they only did half the work and most died. What was left in backup is what the hound used on Travis. Harris nodded. Sorry, he said. I don't honestly know if I would have made that choice if I were in your shoes. Kaz looked at him and shook his head. No, it wasn't a sacrifice in the sense you think. We had our time. These weren't seeding vessels to rekindle our race. That was never our goal. All life is precious. If not for Travis attempting to analyze the box, it wouldn't have reactivated at all, I think. I don't know how, but he was the catalyst. But there is always hope. He smiled, glancing at Harris. That's the true meaning of life, you know. We few spread out across the universe as one last act of hope to whatever came after. Kaz turned back toward the others. Thank you all for giving me hope where I had given up, he said. And now I must ask for a favor. He waited a few seconds as Harris and Sora nodded. Leave me here, and say the room was completely collapsed, gone, that Travis just barely escaped being crushed with the rest of the place. Harris looked at his team each in turn. Carter, Abhi, Sora, Travis. Each nodded in turn. You can get out of here, Doc? Carter asked. Kaz nodded. Don't worry about me. I've been in tighter spots before. I need to see what happened here. To my mate. Hey, Carter said, stepping up and looking into the box again. It's what I'd do too, Doc. Won't they notice us a man short? Sora said. Kaz shrugged. I think you'll find very few people asking any questions about that. Arrangements to cover my disappearance have already been made. But I think you might see me again in the future. Who knows? It wasn't a speedy retreat back to the top world again. Harris was adamant about the team cleaning up after themselves at any site, and this was no exception. Six hours later, the five of them were back in the command center, drinking stale coffee and being uncharacteristically silent to the many questions Tran and the others had for them. Kaz was right, though. There were no questions from anyone beyond Tran about what happened in the cave. Harris took it as a small blessing, because what could he even say? No matter how he put it, it would all sound ludicrous.
Carter, of course, summed it up perfectly when Tran pressed. Well, Tran, Carter said, putting an arm over the man's shoulder and leading him outside. I don't want to say it's aliens, man, but you know. Jason D. April has been writing professionally for over 20 years, mostly in nonfiction. You can find his bylines appearing on such sites as Playboy, Paste Magazine, Motherboard, Upload VR, and others. Occasionally, he even lets bits of fiction escape out into the wild. Jason does not tweet. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.